Warning: There are things in this episode that you just can't unhear. Today's episode of the Scathing Atheist is brought to you by the new American branch of the Islamic Jihad movement, Vanilla ISIS. Are you a white celebrity trying to salvage your public image and look more intelligent than you are by being way too politically correct? Are you trying desperately to get people to talk about something other than what a shitty Batman you'll be? Well, pretending to embrace Islam is the new ironic black T-shirt. Vanilla ISIS. Stop. Caliphate and listen to the Scathing Atheist. I'm Dr. Richard Carrier, and I'm hyped up on Benadryl. And we did, in fact, evolve from Filthy Monkey. Ah, it's Jupiter Day. It's October 9th. And I'd probably give Bronco's wide receiver Demarius Thomas an over-the-pants handjob if you asked. <laughs> I'm no illusions. I'm Heath Enright from Broadway Black, New York, New York. And John Way Slack, Podong, Georgia. This is The Scathing Atheist. On this week's episode... Eli Bosnick impregnates the girl from Dirty Dancing. <laughs> we'll learn that back alley abortion doesn't mean that they go in through the rectum. <laughs> and I'll give you $20 for winning that bet. And Steve Wells will be here to talk biblical butt sex. But first, <laughs> the diatribe. Buddy Chester was a psychic. Or at least that's what he said, and he had no reason to lie, so I believed him. I talked to him plenty of times before. He struck me as a rational, intelligent person. Seemed that he had, you know, a fully functioning bullshit detector, and I prided myself on having a pretty key eye for honesty. So here's Chester. He's an intelligent guy who honestly believed he was a psychic. And what's more, he wasn't the only one. His girlfriend also believed that he was psychic. A couple of friends of his did, too. So I proposed that we put his powers to the test. Now, keep in mind that this is almost 20 years ago. I wasn't out to debunk his claim. Quite the opposite. In fact, I was hoping to bunk it because I, I believed in psychic powers. Or at least I was inclined to believe in them, but I was just rational enough to demand evidence. I, I was convinced that the evidence was out there, and sure, it was elusive, but damn it, I was going to find it, and maybe Chester was my opportunity. So we designed what we thought was a very scientific study. I would choose random numbers between 1 and 10, and then I would think them at him really hard. And we would track his guesses, and we would check to see if he was right more than 10% of the time. And then, what's more, this is the scientific bit, we would switch places at the end, and then he would think numbers at me. So we had a control group, too. Now, obviously, there are all kinds of reasons that this isn't a truly scientific experiment, but it was close enough to thoroughly debunk his claim. You know, when his numbers didn't beat random chance, we assumed it must have been a bad day for him, psychically speaking, and we set up to do it again another day when we had better weed. Of course, this day was no better, so we redesigned the experiment. Perhaps it wasn't enough to just have one person thinking the numbers at him, so I enlisted the help of some friends, and we all thought numbers at him together. Still nothing, so we figured maybe shapes would be better than numbers, and when that still didn't produce the results we wanted, we started using colors, and when that didn't work, we restricted it to a binary choice of angry or happy thoughts. See... For me, the stupidity was never around God. God was a word that had been tainted by too many prudish ladies telling their daughters not to fuck me and preppy kids scolding me for being high and saying the S word. I didn't want God, but I also didn't want boring old reality. So I set out searching for any scrap of evidence to prove that some mystical claim, any mystical claim, was true. And I found plenty of stuff, but damn my rational bent, I would always check the source. You know, I'd always read the rebuttal, I would always run the experiment, and after years and years of failing to find the treasure, I eventually admitted it wasn't there. 
Now, I'd imagine that many, if not most of you, have had a similar experience, one of those show-me-a-sign moments where you begged God to exist. You know, you asked for a sign, and you would have taken anything. You didn't say, God, please show me you exist by turning this stone into a loaf of bread, or God, please demonstrate your might by manipulating the outcome of this random number generator to a statistically significant degree. You said, show me a sign. The, the clouds could have parted at that moment. An old friend could have called you on a phone. A bird landing on a windowsill. A religious song coming on the radio. A sudden, stiff fucking breeze would have done the trick. Any of those things in the moment would have been enough, but even when you set the bar on the ground, God still couldn't stumble over it. Now, I bring this all up because there's a phrase that I think we need to move away from. Or, you know, fuck it, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but it's a phrase that I'm going to move away from. And it's one that I've said a time or two on this show. You can't reason someone out of something they didn't reason themselves into. Clearly, that's false. Now, I want to give some credit to the people who have said this, myself included. The sentiment that's usually being expressed here isn't that you can't reason with religious people. It's that it takes more than reason to get them out of their indoctrination. It's a statement of exasperation when you encounter somebody who spends two paragraphs of an Amazon review trying to justify the biblical claim that rabbits chew their cud by appealing to their penchant to gobble their own shit. It's a reaction to the pretzel brain, tissue-thin apologetics they use to spackle over the huge holes in their theology. You say to yourself, you cannot possibly believe that that's a valid argument. You must be impervious to reason. But in truth, they're not. You know, obviously they're not, because most of the people listening to this show escaped religion by way of reason. We're all subject to reason on some level or another. Why do you think that they have all these weird apologetics? Nobody ever started believing in God because they realized that rabbits eating their own shit is kind of like chewing their cud, thus proving the inerrancy of the Bible. This all develops post hoc because even if they believe in God for emotional reasons, they still have to get him past their logical filter. They don't so much use reason as subvert it, but reason is still involved. And no matter how indoctrinated they are, it's still down there somewhere lurking underneath every amen. It's prodding them after every prayer. Hell, that's why they have to keep going back to church every week to be reminded that God loves them. It doesn't work that way with real knowledge, does it? You don't have to keep going back to Chem 101 every year to stay convinced that there are 18 protons in argon. Biologists don't have to reread origins every so often to galvanize their belief in evolution. It's only faith that works that way. And no matter how far gone they seem, somewhere down there, somewhere deep within them, logic and reason are hard at work chipping away at God. Now, you and I don't know how much bullshit it's going to have to chip through to get there, but sharpening that chisel is never a waste of time. They're talking about your Jesus. We interrupt this broadcast and bring you a special news bulletin. Joining me for headlines tonight is, according to a recent iTunes review, unapologetically douchey yet somehow eminently likable frat brother you never had, Heath Enright. <laughs> Heath, are you ready to be unapologetically douchey? I'm a white, college-educated male, and I always, always get a parking spot. Like, right in front, like, every time. Of course I'm not apologizing. That'd be crazy. And speaking of douchey white people in our lead story tonight, it turns out that Sam Harris without a tie is still way smarter than Ben Affleck in a three-piece suit. Many of you have probably already seen the clip from Bill Maher's show where Affleck shows himself to be as good a debater as he is a Batman candidate. But for those of you who haven't seen it, allow me to paint the picture. (laughs) Sam Harris is complaining that it's difficult to criticize the ideas of Islam without liberals shouting you down as a racist. But fearing the audience might need a demonstration... Liberal Affleck literally shouts him down as a racist. (laughs) Right, because before you make inflammatory, radical statements like criticizing murder in the name of God, it's your job to make sure every single ethno-religious group in the world is doing that exactly equally. 
Right. You know, otherwise that would amount to de facto bigotry based on accurate data, which would, which would be terrible. Apparently, so. as long as you exude enough patronizing indignation when you, when you make that point. Now, during the exchange, Affleck fulfilled his contractually obligated white guilt rage when the suggestion was made that 90% of Egyptian Muslims agree that death is a reasonable punishment for apostasy. And while he could have disputed the figure, as the real number is closer to 60%, he instead paradoxically argued what? that 90% isn't a representative majority. Well, that's extremely stupid. But what does it even matter? We're, we're talking about the belief that a person should be murdered for changing religions. A percent would still be way yes. too much. Yes, so. Absolutely. 60, yeah. 90, 60, one, yeah, that's not horrible. good either. And even worse at making this point, by the way, was panelist Nicholas Kristof, who attempted to refute the inherent violence of the Muslim faith by suggesting that Harris's characterization ignored moderate Muslim reformers. And then he goes on to name three such reformers, but apparently the first three that popped into his head, two of them had been shot by radical Muslims, and the other one is serving nine years in prison at the hands of an Islamic theocracy for saying, hey, maybe we shouldn't fuck these Christians so bad. Right. So these same reformers he just mentioned as a refutation of the inherent violence in Islam are likely to have recently shouted something like, come see the violence inherent in the system. Help, help, I'm being repressed. <laughs> right before they were shot or incarcerated right. by a legal system that claims it adheres strictly to the laws of a so-called peaceful religion. Yeah. That's the claim, anyway. So Harris eventually all but gave up on the whole nuanced answer thing, except to point out that the bully from Mallrats was failing to understand his position. And, once again, demonstrating the accuracy of what Harris was saying at that moment, the bully from Dazed and Confused said, quote, Your argument is, you know, black people, they shoot each other, end quote. But that's not at all what Harris was saying, no. and that's uh, clearly not true. If anything, white people with guns are the problem. But more importantly, if, if we go with Affleck's racist analogy and switch in Muslims, nobody would care that much. If the worst thing that al-Qaeda was doing was shooting other Muslims, we, we wouldn't even heard of them yet. True. Absolutely. But I think the biggest problem with Affleck's presumptuous scorn here is that he's just fucking wrong. The point Harris was trying to make was that we should be allowed to criticize the principles of the Islamic faith without being called bigots. Muslims are not a race. <laughs> the only thing that unifies this group of people that we're talking about is the set of beliefs. And thus, when one criticizes the beliefs, one cannot help but criticize the whole group. So if you can't criticize the group, you it's, this is the nature of categorization. Being the bomb in phantoms doesn't change that, you <laughs> fucking asshole. Reindeer games like a motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> and from the SCOTUS wedding file, according to the highest court in the land, a convicted felon in prison insisting on keeping his Muslim beard is far more reasonable than heterosexual Christian married couples trying to trademark the English word marriage. More precisely, after agreeing to consider the shank beard case, the Supreme Court refused to hear appeals by homophobic entire states attempting to challenge existing decisions that already told them they can't trademark and redefine an existing English word. Right. Even if we hire a lawyer who's an expert on 18th century federalism? Yes, even if you hire a lawyer who's an expert on 18th century federalism. Germain, as that might be. Yeah, topic. well, maybe if you elect enough of those dudes to Congress. Now, don't get me wrong. I am definitely happy that this happened and everything. But how sad is it that the only time the Supreme Court does anything right these days is when they decide not to do anything at all? <laughs> exactly. So... 
who do we know that might have a really clever analogy that would put this case in proper perspective in a calm, level-headed way? Hmm. Who do you, who do you, do you think? Well, I typed that into Google, and it said, did you mean Brian Fisher of the American <laughs> Family Association? And it turns out he does, in fact, have a perfect analogy for us. According to Fisher, forcing states to stop legally persecuting gays amounts to a, quote, de facto Roe v. Wade of sodomy-based marriage by imposing on every state in the union marriage that is based on the infamous crime against nature, end quote. If, if gay uh, people no. just suck each other off, I mean, like, is, is he against the left? <laughs> I, I don't get it. The, the hyperbole surrounding this decision or refusal to amend an existing decision was insane. Nuts. Like, oh, my God, they just went to it in a full fucking meltdown. Focus on a family had a press release saying that marriage has been defined as one man and one woman since the dawn of human history. Apparently, the <laughs> National Organization for Marriage hoped that the Supreme Court would change their mind and, quote, decide that marriage is not unconstitutional, end quote. But my personal favorite <laughs> non- <laughs> Brian Fisher one was from the Family Research Council calling for a constitutional amendment that would prevent gay activists from imposing gay marriage on, quote, every aspect of American life. And, quote, every aspect. How would that even work? I can't even. I, I wonder. I'm trying to imagine somebody imposing gay marriage and sodomy on your morning coffee. And it sounds painful. Doesn't and also apparently we need to review the meaning of the word impose. Obviously, pro life stance and the anti gay marriage stance are clear examples of imposing. The pro choice stance and the gays are people stance, those are clear counter examples right. of imposing. Nobody has to abort a child or get gay married. We're not. In fact, you can you can even come up with a new word for gay marriage if that makes you feel better. Call it a sterile union when you're at the country club. I don't, I don't nobody cares. Feel free to never do it if you don't want to. <laughs> but regardless, the gays are going to keep, you know, abominating whether you like their word choice or not. <laughs> and in Amish lesbians can have test tube babies news. <laughs> Religious right campaign donor Philip Zudhiates was indicted last week in New York for his involvement in aiding the kidnapping efforts of self-proclaimed former gay-turned-Mennonite Lisa Miller. In case you haven't been following this absurdity for five years, here's the background story on this. In response to her ex-partner Janet Jenkins getting legal custody of their daughter, this crazy bitch Lisa Miller enlisted the help of a bunch of insane religious zealots to steal the child and flee to a Mennonite compound in Central America. <laughs> That, the insane plot twist per word ratio in that sentence must have broken some kind of record. <laughs> yeah, I would be surprised. Now, in response to the egregious felony, our good friend Brian Fisher famously tweeted in support of kidnapping children from yes. gay parents and smuggling them to so-called normal homes, like apparently missionary huts in Nicaragua. <laughs> He finds with no electricity. Now, responding differently to the felony were legal authorities in several states who have brought conspiracy charges against those allegedly involved in all this. A suspect list that includes members of Jerry Falwell's Thomas Road Baptist Church, as well as the Liberty University School of Law. And the whole time, I'm just thinking to myself, this Rico case must have been hilarious for the cops involved. Like, wiretapping a string between two cops. Right. <laughs> Keep an Amish eye on those are. Amish Nicaraguans. <laughs> Now, as our regular listeners probably already deduced, if we didn't do the 30 seconds on the clock bit for the Nicaraguan Amish ex-lesbian kidnapper, it can only be because we have an abortion story yet to come. But first, we'll hand things over to Lucinda. A man wrote the Bible. A whore is what she was. If it's a legitimate race. It's a slut, right? Cooking can be fun. Hey, I'm proud of a man. This week in Misogyny. 
U.S., the midterm elections are heating up and the Republicans are salivating over their first potential majority in the Senate since 2007. Of course, they know that to seal the deal, they're going to have to swallow their pride and pretend for a few weeks that women's issues don't make them throw up in their mouth a little bit. And to their credit, Republicans seem to have realized that they need to change the way they talk to women. They recognize that in the past, they've been guilty of talking down to the internally genitaled Americans. But have they been talking far enough down? Their most recent ad campaigns would suggest that they think not. Take, for example, a recent ad by Americans for Shared Prosperity that compares the Obama administration to an abusive boyfriend. Or, even worse, a commercial from College Republican National Committee that compares picking a candidate to picking a wedding dress. And once she settles on that dress that represents Rick Scott, parentheses are, her and her brides may squeal with joy. Because that's how women communicate, isn't it? We squeal and jump around. But at least a few prominent Republicans have realized that women voters are motivated by the issues, too. Take Tea Party favorite and Aunt Tom, Scotty Nell Hughes, who was speaking with Brian Fisher on his radio program last Friday. Responding to the primal clicks and grunts with which Fisher communicates, Hughes explained why women shouldn't serve in combat. Her argument? They don't even have penises! Hughes explained that she was trying to teach her sons not to push women and to hold doors for them. And how would it be possible to not push women and hold doors for them if they were in combat? And as if this non-sequitur wasn't enough, she also pointed out that one day her son would grow up and he just might join the military. And having to serve next to a woman in combat would be very confusing for him. Look, lady, judging by the half of his genetic makeup that I've seen so far, pretty much everything is going to be very confusing for your kid. But, of course, if you want the straight dope on women voters, you've got to turn the halfway point between Gerardo Rivera and Borat, John Stossel. Guest hosting on Fox News last week, Stossel pointed out that the real problem with women voters is that they're worried about petty stuff like global pandemics and climate change. Recognizing post-facto, of course, that the other four people on the show were women, Stossel admitted, quote, I'm being really sexist here, end quote. But despite the recognition, he plotted forward, suggesting that worrying about shit is somehow a zero-sum game. He pointed out that there are other things that are also bad, so who gives a shit about rising sea levels and dead Africans? Of course, judging by the quotes I'm familiar with from Stossel, my guess is that he'd rather we concern ourselves with the real problems facing America. You know, like energy-efficient light bulbs, hurricane victims, and those damn engines. And with that, I'll hand it back to Noah and Heath. Until next time. Thank you, Lucinda. And in Go FFRF Yourself News tonight, the FFRF has politely reminded North Carolina that the Constitution does not have a best-if-used-by date upon learning that at least three public elementary schools in the state were offering 45-minute Bible-as-literal-fact classes. Now, these classes, which the FFRF described as flagrantly unconstitutional, teach literal seven-day creation along with telling six- to nine-year-olds that the universe was created with a plan and that the Bible predicted later scientific discoveries. You can't do that. When you no. walk into a class of six to nine-year-olds holding a Bible and a beaker, they don't know you're stupid yet. Right. They, they don't laugh at you right. They, they haven't fair. been taught yet. Now, a, a local pastor even admitted that his church helps fund the uh, the three Bible teachers for this course, but he defended the class by pointing out that they didn't just start violating this Constitution thing recently. They've been doing this since the 60s. Besides, there's a purgatory option for the heathen kids that don't love Jesus, so it's not like everybody has to go to the class. Moving on, in miscarriage of justice news, 
At his swearing-in ceremony last week, newly elected Texas State Senator Charles Perry astutely pointed out that the atheist mass murder plot doesn't just target homophobic Christian bigots like we learned last week from Peter LaBarbera. Perry reminds that we also already successfully targeted about 55 million unwanted zygote people since 1973 alone, so let's keep this all in perspective. Then he went full Reddit troll and compared the Roe v. Wade decision to innocent Jewish people being shot in the throat during the Holocaust. And for the second time in two weeks, Godwin's law was confirmed by a ridiculous personality from the Christian right. Yes, well, admittedly, the fooling the fetus into thinking it's just getting a physical and then shooting it in the throat method of abortion is unorthodox, but uh, I'm I'm sure it's effective, ultimately. (laughs) Wow, yeah. Also invoking the Holocaust during the government ceremony was unconstitutional guest speaker Pastor Jeff McCrate of Rock City Church, who learned the word analogy on a vocabulary calendar earlier that morning and then went on to say, quote, The value of human life is continually being attacked by a 41-year-old Holocaust called abortion, which makes Hitler look like a humanitarian, end quote. <laughs> Wow. Just learn the word analogy, though. Yeah, apparently. Apparently. You know, it just now occurred to me how much everybody in the audience cringed when they realized we had abortions and the Holocaust in the same segment. And now I I have to point out that the the one that you just read there, though, that's at best the third most hyperbolic statement at this ceremony. (laughs) Perry himself actually said at one point, he asked what the difference was between the Holocaust and, quote, laws that lead people away from God, end quote. And then he paused at his best imitation of thought before explaining that the only difference, as he saw it, is that what the Nazis did hurt right away, whereas leading people away from the God thing, that, quote, won't be exposed until the final days and will have eternal lasting effects, end quote. Wow. So, yeah, the only difference that this guy can find between secular laws and genocide is in the timing. Yeah, it's just the clock. Just, yeah. That's, that, that's the only So now that they figured out our plan and, and everyone knows just how, how much pro-choice advocates like us love killing babies, might as well kick it into high gear, start the wildly aggressive <laughs> ad campaign that we may or may not have oh, been working on for years. And <laughs> we'll need 30 seconds on the clock to make up new ones for this one. Slogans for the proactive abortion services. Go. All right. How about uh, the evacuation station? Come quick before the Christians bomb us <laughs> or outlaw us. Um, uh, emission impossible. Zygost protocol. Menstruate watchers. It was one to four pounds in 30 minutes or less. Guaranteed. <laughs> Sign up for Obamacare and we'll waive your fetus. <laughs> Abortion, making airplanes quieter since 1973. <laughs> so it works. Nice. nice. Airline. Revergent Atlantic, home of the world's biggest hangar. Oh, right. uh, what, sorry. Very sorry. All right. What about the cream pie piper? The flute does exactly what you think. Oh, wow. It just gets worse and worse. How about Unscrewed Incorporated? Because eventually that little fucker will want to use your Xbox. <laughs> How many abortion doctors does it take to unscrew? <laughs> never mind, never mind. Right. Um, what about Breast FedEx, now with morning after delivery? Right. <laughs> Guaranteed. Yeah, from the makers of the morning after the morning after breakfast cereal, Embryos, <laughs> now with Zygote brand. Even. No, no, no gluten. Um, live on fallopian tube. Watch us save your career in HD on our Zygo Pro camera. <laughs> All right, I have a horrible one. How about Levinage just plan B, because thalidomide only does half the job. <laughs> is that the worst one yet? It's so, is that joke. is it going to get, it's, it's not going to get worse than the thalidomide <laughs> joke, is it? I'll try. Um, about... 
Crowning achievement first. Fourth trimester specialist. Oh, God, it is. <laughs> just the tip, just to see if it feels. So um, how about we use some controlled ordinance in this? Maybe baby kaboomers, IUD, IEDs, to exhume the bloom in your womb. You, know, you make it rhyme, people it, will remember rhyme. that. Yeah, exactly. Um, welcome to Stem Celibacy Retroactive Parenthood Extinguishing Service, or SCRAPES. <laughs> you bake it, we snake it. You stuff it, we snuff it. You rub it out, we scrub it out. <laughs> so terribly sorry. <laughs> and it will get worse. It will it get worse. I can't believe we have a couple more. It, it, really, it really actually does, believe it or not. How about eight-minute abortions? Retroactive stretch mark <laughs> removal services. Keep that figure. It's just one of the many benefits of killing babies. You think you could throw a few more stitches in there and make her tighten up a little? Oh, All right. Um, why wait for Plan B the morning after when you could take care of it that night? Welcome to Plan A. They call me Prima Docta. <laughs> if this doesn't work, the Plan C section of the maternity ward is right down the hall. <laughs> All right. How about... Um... All right. Well, no, because he's, wor- he's out of work this season anyway. So how about... Let Ray Rice blast you in the blastula for an in-elevator abortion for the gal on the go. Ray Rice elevator abortions. Sure beats taking the stairs. What the fuck, man? (laughs) That wasn't, by the way, that one wasn't entirely my idea. I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus, but there was another atheist podcaster that was involved in that one. My it's, but it's that doesn't make congratulations it to that other atheist <laughs> podcast who's equally sick. Uh, one more. Um, oh please. The the egg drop soup kitchen. Parenthood over easy. <laughs> Takeout, but no delivery. Oh wow! <laughs> so terribly like, sorry. We got it's like, it's like the one child policy version of Chinese takeout. And Dude, I guess now that we've proven man? that we can get even more offensive than last week's Nazi restaurants, <laughs> we will close out headlines for the night. He thanks as always. <laughs> It's not funny. It's not this funny anyway. Now, Eli Bosnick will be here a little later to help us break down one of the 23 worst films in Nicolas Cage's filmography. But first, we'll welcome back the official biblical annotator of the scathing atheist, Steve Wells. I'm excited to welcome back to the show author Steve Wells. You'll remember him from episode 83 when he came on to talk about the Skeptic's Annotated Bible. Now, we promised you then that he'd be back to talk about his new book, and we are men of our words here at The Scathing Atheist. Steve, welcome back to the show. Hi, Noah. Thanks a lot. Now, I asked you on again to talk about your new book, Strange Flesh, The Bible and Homosexuality. I have a million things I want to ask you about this book, but I suppose we should start with the title. What does Strange Flesh mean? Yeah, it's taken from a uh, phrase in... The book of Jude, uh, the the seventh verse of the book of Jude. The book of Jude is just a little book there, right before Revelation, uh, at the old at the end of the old, of the New Testament. And, and there, the the author talks about men going after strange flesh, and it it's not clear what the meaning of that is. But it's either it's either one interpretation is that he's talking about homosexuality, referring to the men of Sodom. The other is that he's talking about the men uh, of um, the angels that had sex with the daughters of men, with women, in Genesis uh, six, chapter uh, chapter six, verse four. So it's it's hard to tell which he's t- which he's talking, uh, which he's actually referring to there. But conservatives tend to think that when he the the it's a condemnation of homosexuality. His re- his reference there to strange flesh. Okay. 
All right, now, I got to say, I, I'm going to gush a little bit because I, I really enjoyed the hell out of this book. And I don't know if I realized how important this book was until I started reading it because this is a debate that I often find myself on both sides of. So on the one hand, I'm arguing with these conservative Christians that say we ought to outlaw gayness on account of what the Bible says. But I'm also arguing with these liberal Christians who insist that, no, that they've got the Bible all wrong. It's pro-gay, and they're just misrepresenting it. So would you say that either of those views are correct? Mm, kind of that, a big question I, you to know, start th you off with there. Yeah, it is. No, it's it's a very good question. And and I I, I think that the conservatives really have the better argument here. Uh, there, there are five, uh, five or six, depending on who's counting, the verses that clearly, where the Bible speaks clearly about homosexuality, and those verses clearly condemn it. No question about it. They, 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 they outright condemn it. Whereas the 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 liberal argument is much more difficult and nuanced, and you know, you 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 it it it, it could be made, but it's difficult. Mm -hmm. Now, I think most of us know about the uh, the two passages in Leviticus that talk uh, directly about homosexuality. Can you can you fill us in on the other three or four, depending on how you count them? Uh, yeah, well, probably the most important of those is Romans one, uh, where it, because that's from the New Testament and that's uh, from uh, from Paul, and we're, and Paul is talking. And it's it's the only um, it's the only passage in the Bible that refers specifically that includes lesbianism. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. In it, uh, so so that one is um, is is pretty strong and pretty clear, and it's from the New Testament. So that that's a uh, an important passage. Uh, the other one is all. There's another one that's from Paul from First uh, Corinthians chapter six. But um, I would say that those two from Leviticus, along with Romans one, are the are the three probably most important uh, anti-gay passages in the Bible. Now, I will say, I, I don't have it here, so I can't quote it exactly, but the one the in Romans 1 is just crazy, and it also led to what I th might have been my favorite part of the book, where you show how the Bible kind of weighs in on the argument about whether people choose to be gay or are born that way. Uh, do you mind filling us in on, on what the Bible tells us about that? Yeah, it seems like Paul is saying that it, it neither is true, that, that people become gay because God makes them gay. And he and he does that because they they have rejected him they haven't they haven't honored him or praised him enough and and so they stop worshiping God and they start worshiping nature and then before you know it it's just one thing leads to another until finally God just lets them go down that that slippery slope all the way down to uh, homosexuality. Oh, I gotta say when you were describing in the book sort of the process that uh, that Paul lays out there, I was laughing out loud. That was phenomenally funny stuff. And 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 like it would be a lot funnier if there weren't actually people who believe that this stuff is true. But one way or the other, uh, it was quite a uh, quite a fun one. Now, of course, in addition to these passages that expressly talk about uh, uh, homosexuality, there are also a lot of stories that can be used to sort of infer God's uh, opinion uh, about gays. Um, you point out in the book uh, an interesting uh, element of that in the story of Lot and the angels, uh, how that really kind of informs us as well. Yeah, that's an important one because that, that's used so much in the debate. And it, but it's also important in, in that it, it provides maybe both sides, there's very strong arguments. The conservatives say that clearly what's going on here is that you have the, the men of Sodom, all of the men of Sodom, come to the door. You know, in the, in the story, you have the angels that are that are um, that are visiting uh, Lot, and you have everyone from the from the city of Sodom come to the door and ask to to know 
um, Lot's visitors, you know, the angels. And of course, to know, and it, 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 there's there's some argument about this, but it almost most most people agree that what what is meant there is to have sex with. And so you have the men asking to have sex with with angels who apparently appeared to be men. And so it looks like what the uh, and then and the next thing you know, God is uh, well after Lot tries to he tries to appease the mob by saying hey you can have my virgin daughters instead don't you know don't don't uh, you know leave this guy alone but you can do whatever you want with my virgin daughters heck of a guy. Um, yeah heck of a guy and it didn't seem to bother God at all but it did seem to bother God that the men of Sodom wanted to have sex they just wanted to have sex they didn't do it they wanted to have sex with these Angels, which they thought were men, which I guess means that they, he was, then he, he destroys the whole city because of their desire, I guess, to have sex with the men. Um, right, yeah, I guess not even a, not even a consummated act, I guess. I didn't think about that either. No, they, they, it, it all, God strikes them all blind and, and, you know, and, they, and then they leave, uh, Lot and his daughters, um, and, and his wife leave. And um, then everybody is, is while they're leaving, everyone is destroyed. So it looks like everybody was destroyed for that homosexual desire, I guess. Right, right, because it's clearly not the rape thing because Lot was considered to be perfectly okay for offering his daughters up for rape. It was just yes. it was more the homosexual uh, aspect or nature of it. Apparently, and yet there are maybe a dozen, maybe more um, verses throughout the Bible that that. Um, talk about the sin of Sodom, and they never mention homosexuality. They, they, there's a long list of of they, they didn't take care of the poor. They didn't. They weren't. You know, a long list of things that supposedly the sin of Sodom was, and none of them is homosexual homosexuality. And so the liberals have a pretty good argument there. Gotcha. Um, yeah, no, I don't think we've gotten to any of those, but I have been uh, corrected by a few theists on my uh, on on like my YouTube channel and say, no, oh, it wasn't about gayness, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah, just a, yet another reason why I highly recommend your book. Now, there are also some characters, though, that when you read the Bible, you can't help but wonder maybe about their sexual orientation. You know, you look at Ruth and Naomi, for example, mm-hmm. um, or I, you know, I don't even know how you read. Uh, about David and Jonathan, without, without assuming they're at least giving each other the occasional Dutch rudder. So, you know, I, it, I, I would imagine that a lot of the liberal arguments probably rest on those, on those characters that seem to be gay at, at, at a glance. Yes, they do, and and there again, I think that that's probably their one of their uh, some of their stronger arguments are on on those two examples that you mentioned, those two couples, uh, Ruth and Naomi, and David and Jonathan. The others are are pretty far fetched, right? I think. I mean, you, you can you can make the claim if you if you'd like, but you know the um, many of them. I think he kind of well. I mean, they definitely are weird. I mean, the the, the story about um, uh, Elijah and the dead boy and, and Elisha right. and, and the dead boy. Th- those are weird stories where he's laying down on top of them and you know stretching over him repeatedly. Yeah. yeah, it it sounds weird, but I don't I don't know if it's gay. It's just Kind of strange Bible stories. Yeah, well, and they're all pretty strange, no matter you know, gay or not. All of these stories are pretty weird. So let's let's talk about Jesus a little bit. I mean, he he spent a lot of time with scantily clad dudes. He never took a wife. Uh, you know, yeah. what do you think? Do you think uh, like, no, I don't think so. I no. mean, first of all, first of all, I'm I'm not entirely convinced that there was a Jesus. You know, I, the, there's 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 some debate about that. I'd, I'd put the probability at like maybe seventy percent, seventy eighty percent, but 
beyond that, what we know about Jesus is that he was crucified by the Romans. And apparently, I mean, if, if he existed at all, right. he was crucified by the Romans. And, and, and he said some things that, that upset some people. And beyond that, uh, he was a Jew. And he was a, probably a, an apocalyptic Jew. But whether he was gay, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't think he can get there, really. Right, right. Yeah, now, again, one of those things that I've seen presented by the extraordinarily liberal uh, Christian that's desperate to sort of, you know, spackle over the, the, the Bible, what the Bible actually says uh, about homosexuality. Now, there was actually a chapter in your book, had one of my all-time favorite chapter titles, uh, tackling the question of whether God is gay. And I, I have to admit that going into it, thought it was kind of a silly question. But as I'm reading it, I'm thinking to myself, man, he really did like his prophets naked, didn't he? He loved to show up in the middle of the night and wrestle with them and... He mooned, yeah. mooned Moses at one point, I do believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. And he was exposing himself, uh, you know, to um, to uh, some of his um, uh, prophets as well, uh, showing off the glory of the Lord. And, you know, it, there was a lot of, you know, you can really point to a lot of strange things and they can be interpreted. Uh, you can make them sound pretty gay. Whether whether or not the whoever was writing those had you know would have would have uh, had that mind at all I I have no idea really right. well confirmation bias is a powerful engine now yeah I, I would say at least in this country sort of the main front uh, on the war for LGBT equality is the gay marriage issue and you tackled that one in a, a really interesting way in the book as well so tell us what exactly is a biblical marriage. Oh yeah, yeah. The the biblical marriage. Um, I I I, I titled the um, the that chapter. Um, I want a marriage like they had in the Bible after a song uh, by Ray Zimmerman that I, I had a chance to listen to him. Uh, he came to Moscow and and we got to we got to hear him sing that song, and I was so impressed by it. And and but what he does in the song, and of course what you can do when you look through the Bible is just look at all of the. The uh, ways, the, the the way that that marriage is presented in the Bible, and there's really no, there is, it's difficult to say what marriage is in the Bible, or or even if it exists, because it's basically just a, in, in Genesis, it's basically just a a man taking possession of a of a woman and and owning her, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no marriage ceremony or or anything. Uh, like that, and then you got the polygamy, and you got the you know. There's just um, marriage in the Bible is so such a poorly defined concept that I don't know how anybody could come up with a coherent uh, um, uh, definition of biblical marriage. Yeah, now, it's really interesting to look at uh, all of the different uh, like sort of that comprehensive list you gave of of different things that seem to be acceptable at least in in certain parts of the Bible. Now, I, I'm again, like I said, I got to gush a little bit about it. I highly recommend this book to anybody who regularly engages with theists on this issue. It presents all the common arguments in the debate, both the ones used to condemn the gays and the ones used to defend the Bible's horrific condemnation of the gays. It's witty. It's a fun read. It's exhaustively researched. Plenty of resources if you want to dig deeper into the individual arguments. Again, hats off to you, Steve. I think this is another invaluable resource for the secular community. Oh, thanks, Noah. Again, the book is called Strange Flesh, The Bible and Homosexuality. It's available now on Amazon and other fine retailers. You can find links to pick up your copy at scathingatheist.com. You'll also find a link there to Steve's blog, Dwindling Unbelief, as well as a link to skepticsannotatedbible.com. Steve, thanks again for your time. Thank you, Noah. (laughs) 
It would seem that the summer of laughably horrible Christian cinematic debacles has given way to the autumn of laughably horrible Christian cinematic debacles, and leading the way is early Razzie frontrunner Left Behind, in which the 11 executive producers embezzled $14.99 million and used the remaining ten grand to make a movie. The film stars a drugged and likely blackmailed Nicolas Cage who phones in an airline pilot who's halfway across the Atlantic when suddenly half his crew and passengers are raptured away in prelude to the end times. Joining me to discuss this award-eligible film is my good friend Eli Bosnick. Eli, welcome back to the show. Oh, no, thank you for having me. We always meet under the worst of circumstances. I know. We got to call. We got to talk sometime just to just to chat. <laughs> right. We're always like, hey, how you been? Oh, this fucking thing. <laughs> Oh my! There was no aspect of this movie that wasn't a failure. It's no, cinematography, no. score, script, acting, set direction, makeup, hairdressing, fucking catering. Even the opening logo looked cheap in this movie. Yeah, because the first you see the logo and then it pans to the book that says "Acts of God," and this woman like fingers her cross a little, and then she picks it up, she pays for it, and she sort of smiles at the camera like I'm the Christian. And you and I wrote this movie has been on for four seconds. It's already heavy handed, right? <laughs> now the first thing I wrote down was what 1980s video game cutscene did they harvest this music from? That's the, it, it. Opens like a romantic comedy. It the whole movie. The plot opens like a romantic comedy that someone went insane during. It's like it's like a 1990s liar liar. But halfway through, the writer's wife and kid died in a car crash. <laughs> So he's like, and then everybody gets raptured and takes <laughs> But let's talk about Nicolas Cage looks like a witch brought his Madame Dussauds uh, <laughs> to life. They, who trained that ferret to stay on his head the whole time? It was so, and he looks sad. He looks tired. You can see him checking cue cards off camera. <laughs> Is there's everything except like a guy just wandering into shot with like a corner of the card and being like, I love you, honey. <laughs> so this is now a trend because we've seen a bunch of these movies and I need to help understand for myself. 39 seconds into the movie, because I have a little timer on. So I'm just like, boom, problem of evil comes up. The Christian yep. lady walks over and she's like, excuse me, Buck, are you Christian? And the girl walks over and she's like, how come your God's such a piece of shit? And the movie never answers the no, question. No, they don't even try. You mentioned um, already uh, Buck, uh, who just walks around using his porn name in regular life, apparently. So, so, and, and that's, I guess, really where the movie starts. We, we have Chloe. And they fall in love because they have spoken for 48 seconds. Right, right. <laughs> but I want to, this, this is another moment, though. I wrote down that, I said, this script was written by someone who knew a lot about the Bible and had no idea how human beings talk to each other. There's so many moments of dialogue where she sits down and she's like, you ran away. And he's like, you thought I ran away. And she's like, no, you ran, you, I thought you ran away. And he's like, <laughs> that I, the characters get confused. The characters inside the movie are like, I don't know what's coming out of my mouth. <laughs> The other thing is they they dance around the mom's religion in their conversation in the most insane of ways. <laughs> They're just like, yeah, man, you know, um, you know, mom's sort of doing her thing, still doing that, huh? It's like meth is mom on meth. <laughs> I put this down as well because I think it's really important. This movie is, and you mentioned this already, is staged like an eighth grade play. Yes. And, and the best example of this is when she sits down in the Starbucks and she's sad after her dad leaves. And 
we see that Buck is sitting behind her. The camera literally is like, oh, fuck that shit. Get him in the shot. Get him in the shot. And it just, like, <laughs> just pants over and it's like, pull out, pull out, pull out. And just like, no one was like, hey, yeah, you know what? That's fine. It's good. Got, all the words were on the screen. And the movie is filled like that. The, oh, the the script on this was so bad, and even like I, you, the source material obviously was pretty ridiculous too. I, you and you need look no further than the names. The fucking Nick Cage's character has the strange Lovian moniker of Rayford Steele. It's nuts. All the characters' names in this movie are like some like a drunk guy who's been pulled over without a license or registration, making up something for the cops. Oh, Buck and you tap Williams. on my window and go, "What's your name, sir?" Raymond Blumfinth. <laughs> oh, my name's Chloe. My name is Chloe Clinton. Sorry, what's your name? Chloe. My name's Buck. My friends call me Buck. What? Nobody calls you fucking Buck. So now, and 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 this is very important to the plot. So let's not leave it out. When uh, when Rayford gets on the plane and Chloe's talking to Buck afterwards, a guy shows up. And he's got you two tickets for, for Nick Cage. And he's like, oh, here, you're Nick Cage's daughter. Can you, cause it's New York City, so everybody knows everybody. Can you sure. give, um, your dad these you two tickets? Uh, so, so apparently he's trying to take Busty McPoppin tits to the, um, to the U2 concert. And I just want to say, nobody's been laid for you two tickets since 1994 at the latest. Yeah. No so- one in this movie has ever had an affair. And that is brilliantly clear by that moment where they're like, I don't know. What do you do when you're cheating on your wife? I don't know. Probably go see some devil music like Bono. Bono, right? That's devil music. So and then we're getting on the plane here. And this plane has more racial stereotypes than the bus in speed. It's the most amazing thing in the world. And here's the one great thing. I I can go on forever and ever about Vern Troyer. Cause I could I could spend nine hours talking about Vern Troyer. Because when he appears on screen, I go, Vern Troyer, what? I feel insane. Now who is who is Vern Troyer? That's the midget. Oh, okay. That's the little person. The the angry midget who is angry because he's a midget. And according to the audience in the theater that I saw it, um, he, that is fucking hol- every, hilarious. Every angry midget joke. They went back to the angry midget joke well 3,000 times in this movie. And every time the audience just ate it up with a spoon. A quarter of my notes are the test audience must have – the sole feedback they must have gotten for this movie was more midget jokes. <laughs> right. <laughs> so awful. Four midget jokes. And then you've got this Muslim guy who is clearly in the movie for no purpose but to be a really nice guy and not go to heaven because he's a Muslim. Yep. But here's the spinoff I want to see because the tension throughout the movie is between the midget and the Muslim. Uh-huh. That's a buddy comedy that I want to watch. <laughs> midget and Muslim in the post-apocalyptic wasteland. Demons taking down the Antichrist. I didn't give a shit about any of the other characters, but he puts him in a little papoose. Gives him a machine like Chewbacca gun. Chewbacca was C3PO. Oh. <laughs> I'll watch six movies of that shit. All right, so now we're going back and forth between the plane and, and Chloe, and Chloe, she can't stand her mom, so she, she takes off and she goes to the, the mall, and her brother, Skippy, goes with her. So they're walking around talking about the plot. Do you think mom talks about God too much? I think mom talks about God too much. When all of a sudden we're, we're mid, I love you, sis hug, 
and the rapture happens amidst Kids some fucking weird vaporizes. Well, so there's there's a couple of things to point out about this. The first is, and the most important, is that apparently everyone on Earth, when someone vanishes, looks for them in their empty clothes. Right. <laughs> everyone, every single human they walk by is like, "Did you just shrink? Where are you, Timmy? We thought you was a horny toad." And, and okay, so we haven't talked about the director here, Vic Armstrong, who is apparently a stunt man, and his way of portraying chaos in a movie is just in the background of every scene, whether it makes any sense or not, there are people running around screaming. Yeah, no, I wrote, I wrote, people vanished. Rape! <laughs> That's obviously what the, what the writers of this movie thought would happen. Apparently people will forget how traffic works without all the liars. <laughs> right! The main problem with this movie is this movie deeply supposes that the moment the 10% or whatever of the world's population, like, pops away. Everyone else will go fucking bananas. Do you know what would happen if all the Christians in my life disappeared? <laughs> Nothing. I would finish right. this goddamn sentence. <laughs> and they show, I don't want to skip ahead, but at the end of the movie, New York is in flames. Right, right, exactly. New York is burning to the, New York is cinders because... The three people in New York who don't believe in Jesus were apparently operating the don't blow up. The <laughs> well, and then you get the same thing with the airplane, uh, which, okay, so uh, we're back up on the airplane with Nick Cage and his, he's, he's flirting with, with Busty and the co-pilot gets bamfed away. And apparently he had the plane set to careen wildly out of control as soon as I'm not touching anything. Right. Yeah. No, he, he had, he had everything goes bad shit. And then. So he finally gets the plane back to normal, and everyone's like, oh, let's go up. I want to talk to the pilot. And he hits the smother the plane switch. <laughs> right. Well, and what's the mentality here that all the passengers suddenly, a bunch of kids disappear, but their solution here is let's grab our pitchforks and torches and go get that captain. What What the I hell? I expected to open the door and just all the babies are up front with Nicolas Cage <laughs> just sitting on his lap, and he's like, it's not what you think. <laughs> I had a really hard time after Season of the Witch. <laughs> Boy, didn't he. Oh, which, which reminds me, apparently all the air traffic controllers in the world are Christians. Yes, exactly. Well, everybody's reaction in this movie was completely insane. Like like Chloe, she she's hugging her brother when he disappears out of his clothes. And her first thought is, well, maybe he snuck out of his clothes mid-hug. And went to the hospital with all the other naked children from the mall. So yeah, that's went where to the she... hospital to the maternity ward. Yes. Like you do. If I had a nickel, listen, I have a baby sister. <laughs> she just turned 12. And let me tell you, if I had a nickel for every time she took off all her clothes and snuck into the locked maternity ward at my <laughs> local hospital, I'd be a rich man. It's ins it's And nuts. what the fuck is it with all the kids going to have that, that like that is so unbiblical? You know, the, the whole the whole religion rests on the idea that these kids are sinners, especially the ones in the maternity ward that hadn't been baptized yet. Yeah, and this is this is the thing that I became obsessed with while I was trying not to pay attention to this movie. Is there a cutoff age for kids? So all the kids are gone, but was there a kid who, like, blew out his candles and then, fuck, he missed the deadline because everyone got raptured right after <laughs> Like, 12 years old and 13 days, fuck you, you're staying on Earth with the demons and the ass rapes. 
Second thing about the hospital. So she goes to the baby ward. She sees the babies are all missing. And she's like, well, no babies in here. She turns. And then this woman who's standing behind the curtain just like pulls it back and is like, they're all gone. Which means that woman was waiting behind the curtain. Right. She was like, oh, someone's coming. You know what? I'll, you know what? I want to make this real. I'm going to stand behind the curtain and wait for her to see. And then I'll, I'll just pull it back. And she'll be like, oh. And I'll be like, ah. And I'll be crazy. Tell you my wisdom. <laughs> So and then like somehow the the people making this movie they seem to think that this was going to be a who done it for a certain point because we get to this big reveal where they reveal in movie dun, 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 it was god and the movie acts like we didn't know this yeah until I then I feel like that was a Nicolas Cage suggestion he was like have you guys seen National Treasure and they're like yeah Nick we've seen that okay well I want to do that but I want to do it instead of it's Benjamin Franklin, it's God. I want to know. <laughs> I want to figure it out that it's God. So there's a, another plane coming where apparently both of the pilots were good Christians, and it's just careening off to its death over the Atlantic. And Nick Cage sees it coming, but his first instinct is to play chicken. That's an insane mo- – because he knows people have disappeared. He knows pilots have disappeared. Right. And he's still like, C-1857, you're headed right for me. And uh, it's like – I can what? definitely move. You start to pull up and then radio. <laughs> right. <laughs> then he lies about how planes land. He's like, I can't, I can't pull up, so I, that's why I can't land it in the water because the plane will just turn into dust. If I try and land in the water plane, I'll just explode instantly. And I'm like, wait, you can level it out and land it on the ground, but the water's too much for you? Yeah, because I would have to. Shut up. You're not my real dad. (laughs) Have you seen Wicker Man? (laughs) I got eaten by bees. Uh, So finally they get in touch with Chloe and, and, and she decides she's oh, the best. She tells her dad there's a highway that's under construction where you can land the plane. It's right by the mall. She actually says that it's by the mall. This yeah, is by New the mall, York dad. fucking city. Yes, oh the mall. Yes, I get it. Oh the mall. Yeah, just let me land a plane on that unconstructed roadway. <laughs> right. Also, there's a weird clap moment. Like I feel like that wasn't cor- I feel like the extras weren't hadn't read the script because it was like so we're going to be landing soon. Yay! Wait, no, no, wait. That's not what I meant. I meant we're all going to die. <laughs> right. But please enjoy Moonstruck. We managed to get that working on the in-flight movie. You guys remember when I was good? Huh? Let's have some fun. Look how handsome I was. So they land the plane, and oh, gee, but they don't have flaps now. So can they slow it down because there's a truck full of flammable gas right at the end of the runway can it slow and it does slow down yeah there's a lot of people don't know this but wiley coyote stores all his explosive buttons in a circle around every in construction roadway absolutely apparently because once the plane is safely landed chloe goes running up to it and in the background Shit's just exploding for just, no goddamn reason. Just because the plane wing hit it. So oh, it's like, right, <laughs> right. And things explode when they're hit. I keep forgetting. <laughs> so, you forgot every time you touch something. That's why you can't ever. That's why they wear pads in football so the guys don't just burst into flame. <laughs> so Kill now everybody. They're, they're getting out of the plane and and the midget falls down. So it's hilarious. It's pushed by the Muslim. I'm telling you that buddy cop, that buddy movie. <laughs> I would is watch a that. Dollar franchise. <laughs> Muslim and a midget. This week, you make it a show. I wasn't Fox. sold until you mentioned the papoose. When you mentioned the papoose, I'm 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 totally in. Mm-hmm. So my question coming out of this, I had a lot of questions, but my main question is, who the fuck 
was this movie for? Yes, it's ham-handed, and there's a lot of Bible references and God references, but it doesn't have like a message, like a Christian message behind it. There's no like all the Christians in the movie are are fucking lunatics. So who was the intended audience? Even the Christian Post trashed this piece of festering monkey shit. So it, who do you think they were making this for? I'll tell you exactly who this movie's for. This movie is, is for every stepdad who just lost a fight with his atheist son. He's like, I just want some evidence. You don't deserve any fucking evidence. And then he storms out of the house. He gets in his shitty pickup truck and he goes to the movie and he just sits there in the movie and he's like, yeah, fucking <laughs> and, then I, and then I'm going to disappear and he's going to be stuck in a plane with fucking Tits McGee and everybody's going to... Mary's gonna go to miss me, and everyone's just gonna start raping each other, and jewelry store owners are just gonna come up with shotguns in the middle of Manhattan and kill a black guy, and then, and then, and then they're gonna wish I was there. <laughs> Nuts. That's exactly what this, this was movie was the evangelical version of a six year old going, I'm gonna run away, and when I do, they'll appreciate all the stuff that I did. They'll miss me. Cause what would we, what would we possibly do without all the Christians? How would we hand, oh no. What if all the, all the people who were holding back our progress and hundred trillion dollars worth of tax money, whatever would we do? And I've, I've said this before, but you know, if there are fiery unicorns, we've got RPGs and now all the smart people in the world are in charge. I'm betting on us. Oh yeah, but Andrew Gabriel's got a winged sword. Yeah, I got a Black Hawk helicopter. There you I think go. The Bronze Age saw that shit coming. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it was great. So, uh, Eli, I think I speak on behalf of the entire audience when I say thank you for once again taking one for the team. Oh, thanks for having me, Noah. Before we hit the road tonight, I want to pre-announce a big announcement on next week's show. I can't tell you what it is, of course, because that would be announcing it, but I can announce that we will announce a big announcement next week. Don't worry, the rest of the outro will be less cryptic. I want to point out to our Patreon donors that if you don't always download the extended version of the show that you get with a per-episode donation, this would be a very good week to make sure that you do. It's the longest extended episode we've put out by far, and it includes more than 20 minutes of Eli going off on Left Behind that unfortunately didn't fit into this week's show. And while we're talking about Eli, I need to thank him one more time for suffering through this horrible shit for us this week. We're going to try to get him on again in the next couple of weeks to review the film Persecuted, which he assures me may contend for the worst film we've reviewed on this show so far. So I'm looking forward to that. Obviously, I need to throw another huge thanks to Steve Wells for coming back so soon. I know I already said it, but I really do recommend his new book. It's a phenomenal resource for those of us in the outspoken atheist camp. You'll find a link to buy your copy on the show notes for this episode. Of course, I need to thank Dr. Richard Carrier for providing this week's Farnsworth quote. Speaking of great books that outspoken atheists should read, his two-part work, Proving History and On the Historicity of Jesus, falls squarely into that category. And I have to say, for something so academically rigorous, his books are remarkably readable. Hopefully, we can get him on the show to talk about those soon. Uh, clearly, the king of abortion jokes deserves some thanks for everything that he does. Heath is the beating heart of this show, and it absolutely couldn't happen without him. Can't thank him enough for everything he sacrifices to make it all work. I also need to thank my lovely wife, Lucinda, for her ever-increasing role in getting this thing out on time every week and for the shoulder rub on Tuesday. I really needed that. But most of all, of course, I need to thank this week's most orgasm-inspiring organisms, Terry, Henry, Christian, Bryce, Chris, Dana, Joel, Kitty, Eden, Jeremy, Andrew, and Harold. Terry, Henry, Christian, and Bryce, whose sexual magnetism allows 
cause the magnetosphere to take a holiday now and again. Chris, Dana, Joel, and Kitty, whose ninjutsu makes Samson look like a wuss for needing that donkey jaw. And Eden, Jeremy, Andrew, and Harold, whose genitals pubic lice avoid out of respect. Together, these 12 magnificently magnanimous magnificos have managed to magnify my magniloquence this week by giving us money. Not everybody has the raw sexual vivaciousness necessary to give us money, but if you think you're up to the challenge, you can make a per-episode donation at patreon.com slash scathingatheist, which you'll find linked on our website, or you can make a one-time donation by clicking on the donate button on the right side of the homepage at scathingatheist.com. And if you'd like to help but you're boycotting money until they take that in God we trust shit off of it, you can also help us a ton by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes, sharing the show on social media, or telling a friend that if they listen to their show, they'll get laid more often. And follow us on Twitter and shit, too, please. If you have questions, comments, or death threats, you'll find all the contact info on the contact page at scathingatheist.com. All the music used in this episode was written and performed by yours truly, and yes, I did have my permission. And on that note, we cue the music. Map, map, map. 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 Map